Welcome to Reframe and Reset Your Career, a career development podcast to help if you're looking for a job, feeling stuck in your career, looking to change your perspective, or just rediscover your why. I'm your host, Harsha Borolesa, and this podcast came about from my passion for neuroscience and psychology and their interaction with career and personal development. In each episode, I will be interviewing recognized experts and successful professionals and asking them about their career journey, their real life experiences, and to share the insights and strategies that have helped their careers thrive. Implementing change is not easy and does take time, but I do hope that their stories will inspire you to take a fresh look at your career and assist you on your path to a more successful and fulfilling career. Here are some highlights of today's episode. You can learn from any situation. So all experiences are good, even when they're painful. Success doesn't always mean money or followers or praise. Success can simply mean doing something that you want to do. So you've got to take action. You've got to be the CEO of your own career. So you have to be prepared that at some point it's going to end and you have to be mentally okay with that. And if you're not, you have to get yourself to a place where you will be okay. It didn't make sense to me that this thing I really wanted to do, I wasn't very good at. And this other thing that I wasn't even interested in was easy. Thank you so much for joining me today on episode 28 of the Reframe and Reset Your Career podcast. I'm delighted to welcome Julie Adam. Welcome, Julie. Hello, Harsha. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful to be here. My, my complete pleasure. Julie is responsible for driving the strategy and overseeing the management and development of Rogers Sports and Media's local and national news and entertainment brands. As president of news and entertainment, Julie's portfolio includes Rogers Sports and Media's 54 radio stations, two podcast networks, 29 local television stations, and 15 television channels. With decades of experience in radio and broadcasting, Julie is a passionate and dedicated leader in her industry. She began her career at Rogers in 1999 as a KISS 92.5 program director. Since then, Julie has been recognized as Canada's first female vice president of programming and as a recipient of the Rosalie Award from Radio Trailblazers. Julie is a graduate of Ryerson University and holds a Bachelor of Applied Arts degree with a major in radio and television. Julie is proud to sit on the board of Big Brothers, Big Sisters Canada, the Canadian Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences, Music Counts, Radio Player Canada, and Canadian Broadcast Sales. At Rogers, Julie is Chair of Rise for Women, a part of the Rogers Women's Network. I met Julie through Seth Goding's Writing and Community course. She made much faster progress than me, and her book, Imperfectly Kind, was recently published. Welcome, Julie. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. I'm not sure I made more progress than you, though, with your <laughs> podcast. Congratulations. You've been uh, doing such a wonderful job, uh, you know, since we met, and I'm really glad to see you, uh, you go for it. No, th th thanks so much, Judy. I I'm still waiting for the Spotify deal to come through, but you can only hope. <laughs> Just keep going. Um, that, now that I know that Rogers has a podcast network, uh, after this, I'll be beating down your door. <laughs> awesome. But Judy, would you like to share a quote um, with the listeners which resonates with you? 
Sure, I picked one from uh, the Dalai Lama. Uh, Be kind whenever possible. It is always possible. Oh, fantastic. No, I think that that resonates really nicely with the show and, and with your book. Now, apart from writing, we both have a love of sports and music. And I see that you love baseball and are a fan of the Detroit Tigers. Now, that's quite an unusual choice. And I think we were speaking off air because the last time they won the World Series was in 1984. And I was doing my deep research and I did realize that Kirk Gibson was actually on that 84 team and helped to win the World Series for the Tigers. And I, I, I know a bit about the Dodgers and I know that he helped them to win their 88 World Series. Do you just want to tell us a little bit about your love of baseball? Sure. It came from my dad. And uh, I'm the youngest of six kids. My brother's the oldest. And then there were five girls in a row. And wow. I'm the youngest. And my brother and I are both wildly passionate about baseball and music, as my dad was. And I, I don't know. So my dad grew up in London, Ontario, which is between Toronto and Detroit, about halfway is London. And at the time that my dad was growing up, he was born in 1927, uh, the, the Toronto Blue Jays didn't exist. Most people from London and in that area ended up becoming Detroit Tiger fans because they could go you know, drive a couple of hours to Detroit and see the games. He managed to brainwash my brother and I to become Tigers fans. And, uh, and that's been our lifelong passion. I love the Jays too. Uh, and actually, the company that I work for owns the Blue Jays. Uh, so I love both teams, but certainly the Tigers were my first love. So obviously, you must be doing a good job to be able to keep your job loving the Detroit Tigers. <laughs> yeah, they somehow put up put up with me. I write a weekly blog newsletter for our team. I've been writing it forever, and I've always signed it with Go Tigers at the end. <laughs> and the president of media at the time, this was several years ago, said to me, like, really? Do you really have to sign it with Go Tigers? So I added in Go Tigers, Go Jays. And that satisfied everybody that I said, I'm not taking the Tigers out, but I will, I will add the Jays because I love the Jays too. Very good. And, and I think another thing we share is obviously music. And you love music from an early age. Now, where did this come from? And what sort of bands did you listen to? Yeah, I think, I, I don't know. I mean, I was just born with it. My, both my parents loved music. The story goes that when I was very young, you know, I couldn't read, but I was able to, I figured out how to work my little, you know, Walt Disney, Mickey Mouse record player. Um, and my grandmother would come over for dinner on Sunday. And even though I couldn't read, I had memorized what color, what, which record was. So she would say, you know, oh, go play me Snow White. And I would go to my little collection and take out Snow White and put it on. I guess you're just born with certain things and music was certainly my passion. And I think it really was my lifeline too, for a while, you know, it was the way that I could express myself, something I was always interested in. I would loved reading about who the songwriters were and who the musicians were and the stories behind the songs. Um, and I grew up, I'm 51. So, you know, my teen years would have been in the eighties, which is really often your teen years are sort of your formative um, music years. Um, but I love everything. I mean, the, I, you know, I was really into U2 and The Cure and, you know, some of those alternative bands in the 80s. Pardon me? You like The Smiths, Julie? The Smiths, of course. You know, I listen to opera. I love jazz. I love classical music. I like hip hop. I like pop music, country. There's not much I don't like. 
you know, at this point in time, after working in the radio space for so long, there's some songs I never need to hear again. You know, it's it's interesting when your passion becomes your full time job. It gets hard to think about music as a hobby anymore because I've been listening to music radio for so long now that, you know, you, the, the thrill of it sometimes uh, can wear off when you've heard the same song for the 10,000th time. No, I, I just love that, that whole idea of music or, or any sort of hobby, because I think it helps you co- to connect with people. It helps you to understand yourself. And I think also the great thing about music is that when you look at some of the backstories of these musicians, you always think, oh, they, they were just sitting around and then the idea came to them. But actually, when you lead, read, say, a biography, there's actually huge amounts of work um, that goes into becoming great. And I think it's that whole idea of putting the work in, the grind, and then that creativity creativity just almost comes to them um, from the the heavens. Um, And they're not really sure where it came from. But I think without doing the hard work, it's not going to happen. I agree with that. I think, you know, creativity is such an interesting word. It's kind of like the word innovation. And I think sometimes those two words are, they're almost overstated and, and they feel like unachievable. You know, innovation means you have to you have to be Steve Jobs and invent the iPhone. Well, that's not what innovation is. Creativity means, you know, you have to be Jay-Z or John Lennon or whomever and, you know, be this hugely successful artist. Really, I think it's just about finding an original or an interesting solution to a problem uh, and or creating something. I mean, that's really what creativity is. I mean, I think whether it's creating a cake or, you know, creating a, a document or creating a memo or, I mean, I think all of that requires creativity and it, you have to work at it. You know, the, the songwriters, they sit down and they work. I mean, maybe writing a song doesn't feel like work, but that's what they do. No different than, you know, the writing course that we went through, you know, we had to sit down every day and write. And um, through that work and through that time that you put in, that's where you're able to get the creativity. Yeah, and I, I was just going to say, you know, taking it back to say writing your book or doing this podcast or or doing anything. I think the first time you do anything, it seems hard uh, unless you have a natural sort of gift or inclination for that. But I think the more you do anything, the better you become. And I, I think the interesting thing with sort of Seth Godin's course is that it sort of breaks it down to writing a little bit every day. And say you're writing a 40,000 word book you almost like divide by the number of days and figure out, okay, what, what numbers do I have to hit? And I found that a really useful way of trying to just break down um, that, that problem. So it's always, if you have a big project to work, you know, it's very difficult to take it all on board all at once, but if you just break it down with your team, then it makes such a difference, doesn't it, Judy? Agreed. I think also the other key is to get started. Yeah. And so often we don't create because we just are too afraid to start. And so we just don't start. The other thing I think is essential is giving yourself and your brain enough free time and enough, you know, time for quiet thought, whatever that looks like, you know, whether it's meditation or whatever it is, or walking or actually whatever that is, you know, that's where I think creativity can really happen. When you give yourself the time you give yourself a problem and then you kind of put that problem in your head and you just let it sit there. And then you give yourself the time to think. And often that's where we do our best 
problem solving or come up with our best ideas is when we're quiet. I don't know about you, but I'm awful at work. I mean, I am sort of the least creative, you know, in my day job when I'm doing work because I don't know, you've got email going and text messages are flying in and you've got, you're jumping from meeting to meeting, at least in my world. It's usually on Saturday mornings or, you know, Saturday afternoon when I'm walking my dog, I really, where I can have some clarity. And that's because my mind is rested and I'm not sort of multitasking and flipping between one thing after another. And I, I totally agree with that. And actually there's a, a really nice lecture um, on, on YouTube uh, by this neuroscientist called Professor Vincent Walsh. And he touches on some of those themes. Uh, I'll email it to you and I'll also leave yeah, it. Yeah, I'd love that. Thank but it's you. That whole, I love that whole idea of just going offline. And, and, and for me, I, I enjoy watching YouTube. And a lot of my best ideas will come from just watching that and thinking about connections. Because I think if you're thinking directly about a problem, it's difficult to solve. But I think when you're going offline and then your brain is working in the background and creating these connections. So no, I, I totally agree with that. So I'm um, quickly moving on to your um, university. So I believe sort of music helped you choose your degree at Ryerson, which I think had some sort of media or radio speciality. That's right. I, you know, I think my original dream in life was to be a rock star and go on tour and be a singer-songwriter, but I couldn't do any of those things. I have zero musical talent and I can't sing. Uh, and it was actually my older sister, one of my older sisters, I'll never forget this, who really recognized how passionate I was about music and how it was beyond a hobby. You know, it wasn't going to be a hobby. It was, it was almost a calling. It was something that I had to do. And I was struggling with what I was going to do after high school because I wasn't a great student. I had a hard time in school. I didn't have, you know, it didn't come easily to me, this sort of notion of, you know, sitting in a class all day. And, you know, I, I wasn't great at memorizing things I wasn't interested in or didn't fully understand. But I knew I should go to university. I felt that that was the right thing to do, even though all I wanted to do was never go to another, sit in another classroom again. And she suggested the, the media program at Ryerson. And, you know, and she was so gentle in her feedback to say, you know, you're not going to, I mean, you're not going to be a rock star. You can't <laughs> sing and you have no musical talent. So have you thought about this? Having those kind of people in your life who you trust and who are really looking out for you to give you that kind of feedback is so essential. And so that's how it all started. And why was it radio in particular, which um, you were drawn to? I think it was the, you know, the course was radio and television. That was the focus. And I think in year one, you do radio and in year two, you do television. And then in year three, you kind of pick which direction you want to go in. I had met some people uh, in radio. Actually, I was on a trip at spring break, I think, and met some people who were traveling and they were working in U.S. radio. And there was just something about the way they talked about the business that I thought seemed um, really fun. And But it was really all about my music, my music passion. And so it wasn't so much about working in radio. It was more about, oh, we'll work for a radio station that played music and maybe I could you know, that would be an interesting choice. And then once I got into the business, I really just fell in love with it. I love the people. I love the fact that it was live. It, you know, it is so immediate. 
it happens in real time. You don't, you know, you do it, you can't take it back. It's out there and then it's over and then you do it again. This notion of keeping, you know, the audience connected and being a companion to them. At the time there wasn't, um, you know, Spotify didn't exist, obviously in the early days. So, you know, people weren't curating their own playlists or they were, but not that easily. So it was a it was a really fun business to get into. And then I just stayed for the people. I just thought it was so fun. I think that's great. And that whole idea about, I think, live performance, because say this podcast, you know, I, I love the fact that, okay, we're not live, but we're recording something. And But I, th- I think that sort of immediacy of doing something, connecting with somebody else. And you know, I, I used to play a lot of sport. And I like the whole idea of, you know, you're out there performing. And if you make a mistake, then, you know, that's it. And, and I almost feel every time I record a, an episode, you want to feel that nervous tension. Because I don't think you actually come up with a good performance unless you have a bit of nerves. And you're thinking, oh, how will it go? Will, will my interviewee turn up? So I think it's nice to have that, that bit of nerves. It's interesting. So how do you manage your nerves? What uh, what does nervous look like for you? And then what do you do about it? I reframe it. And, and it's funny because when I, I started playing sport, I used to get very nervous because I wanted to do well. But then I thought, look, actually nerves are a good thing. You need that nervous energy. It's like if you're going for an interview, you have to be nervous beforehand or if you go into an exam. And I think the older you get, if you can put it, put things into perspective and try and reframe, I just think it makes such a difference. And, and you're almost using those nerves to work with you rather than against you. And, and it's funny, sometimes when I listen to the recording afterwards, I, you know, sort of the guests and myself, we come up with these really interesting points, which I can't actually remember having said, but because you're so nervous, you're not thinking. So um, right. yeah, that's when I think the, the great stuff is like the jamming, the good stuff happens effortlessly. So um. I agree with that. I've I've heard nerves. I mean, I think the scientific um, explanation around it is that, you know, if you can, if you can, nerves are really adrenaline, right? If you can use the, the nervousness to feed your adrenaline and push you forward, like you said, reframe it, uh, it can, it can really help you. Um, and I, yeah, I agree. I agree with that 100%. Cool. And, and so you, you flirted with being on air, I think, on, on radio, but you, you felt your talents were suited to other areas. And I think that self-awareness is really important in anybody's journey, because I think you have to realize what your strengths are, what you're good at, and not try and you know, be a rock star or a baseball player. Um, I mean, what, what do you think about that, Judy, this whole idea of you know, self-awareness? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think... Um... I, I don't think I had much self-awareness, though, in the early days. You know, I really wanted to be on the air because it seemed it was so fun. You know, I played music and people would phone up to request songs and I would talk to them. The problem was the job was really hard for me. You know, I, I loved it and it was fun and it was a great environment, but I wasn't I, it never connected. And so even though I had people helping me, trying to help me to get better at it, Every meeting I had where they were coaching me and, you know, they were trying so hard and I just couldn't get it. It never clicked. And I would go back in there again and I would try again. And then the next day, you know, my manager would give me more coaching tips. Okay, okay, I'm going to go. And then I just, you know, you, you, something doesn't click. And then on the other hand, you know, people kept throwing these projects at me 
that I didn't necessarily want to do, but they would say, oh, you know, we want to develop this new countdown show. Can you go away and think about, you know, go away and come up with a plan for how we would do it? So I would go away and I'd put this thing together and it would be very easy. I wouldn't, I'd spend a little bit of time on it. I'd bring it back to them, you know, way in advance of their deadline and sort of like, here, here you go. And they would say, wow, this is, you know, this is good. And how'd you do it so quickly? And I would say, I don't know. Is it good? I don't, whatever. Here's your, okay, I got to go back on the air. And so it was interesting. I didn't realize it at the time, Harsha. I mean, I, I had someone that had to sort of push me into it, but I didn't have the knack for being uh, on the air. And now when I look back, I understand why. But at the time, it didn't make sense to me that this thing I really wanted to do, I wasn't very good at. And this other thing that I wasn't even interested in was easy. You know, uh, there's that moment where you realize that you know, really to have a successful career, it's not just about what you're passionate about. If you can marry sort of your interests with your skill and solve a problem for someone, that's where you become valuable. And that's when your career really starts to take shape. Um, So as it turned out, being on the air, I wasn't very good. I wasn't good at. But what I ended up, you know, I guess having a skill at was working with other people. And then helping them be good on the air. And that became very rewarding to me. And I, th- I think that's such a great point because I think people sometimes are very fixated about there's only one uh, 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 definition of success or any one goal that they have to hit. And they forget about all these other things that suddenly come up. Like with podcasting, I, I never, it wasn't a dream of mine to be a podcaster. But suddenly this opportunity came up and I did a few episodes and you know how at at the beginning you listen and you think, my God, this is okay, but it's not that great. But the more you do, hopefully you become better and then you you learn to connect with people. And I think it's very much about developing relationships on air and trying to create some sort of chemistry, keep it lighthearted. But I think the more you do, you can get better. And I think it's just about being aware of um, yeah, if it if it does come relatively easily to you, like you said yourself with these other projects, then actually, yeah, it's worthwhile putting some time in and exploring and thinking, oh yeah, is this something that I can turn into a career? So I think that's a, a great point. I think also having people around you that aren't afraid to give you honest feedback and constructive feedback uh, and being willing to take it. And so, you know, I had a lot of people giving me feedback about, geez, we're not really sure this is, you know, this on-air thing is the way you should go. And I trusted them. Um, And then they gave me these other opportunities. And so sometimes it takes a bit of a leap of faith uh, in, in making sure you have the right people around you to really help you understand what you are good at. Moving on to Rogers, obviously you've been with them for over 20 years. Would you like to just talk a little bit about what you do there and your progression over the years? Sure. Yeah, I've been so fortunate. Rogers has been amazing to me. I was part of an acquisition. that The Rogers is a big Canadian company. Founder formed. So Ted Rogers was the, was the entrepreneur and the founder. He started with one radio station and he built this, you know, it's one of Canada's biggest companies. It has wireless, it has cable television, 
It owns sports teams and it has a media division. So off the back of this one radio station, uh, and the radio business is you know, small in comparison to Rogers, but off the back of this one radio station, he built uh, this you know, beautiful company in Canada. And they, in 1999, acquired the radio station I was working for in Toronto. It was at the time where consolidation was starting to happen. The regulation, the ownership rules had changed. And so I joined Rogers and it was crazy. I mean, it, you know, we didn't know the station was being sold. The new owners came in, it was sold. But there's this period of time where the deal has to go through. And during that period of time, the program director, so the person that oversees all the programming, basically everything you hear that comes out of the, uh, out of the stream, that person had to be employed by the previous owner. And so, you know, Rogers said to me, okay, and they'd made all these changes because they changed the format. And so a lot of the people that were with the station weren't there anymore and they needed a program director. And they said, okay, we're, we're going to hire a real program director because I'd never done it before. I was the assistant program director. But in the meantime, we're going to make you the interim program director. When the deal goes through, you know, you're not going to stay in that position, but we'll figure out what to do with you and we'll find you a job within Rogers. And, and I said, that's totally fair. I'm happy to do it. And that was the start. And as it turned out, the deal took a lot longer to go through than they expected. I think if the people they tried to hire, it didn't work out. And so the next thing you know, you know, we're kind of six months into it. I've hired the entire staff. We're having some success. You know, I, I have no idea really what I'm I mean, I really, you know, when it came to hiring people and managing them and coaching them, you have no idea when you're starting out. It's just, you're just throwing spaghetti at the wall. And that was my start. And then since then, I've done a variety of different jobs for them. I was a general manager for a while. I headed up programming for the country. Then I ran the radio business. And then I took on the, we, then we bought a podcast network. And then I took on the television, non-sports television business. So, and now um, we've sort of reformatted everything. So anything news or entertainment is in my portfolio. And I spend most of my time uh, working for the team. You know, really, my job is to help everyone else get their job done. So I set the strategy, although my philosophy is that the team sets the strategy. So really, I'm the, the moderator to help us set strategy and then, you know, hold the team accountable and do whatever I can to help get the roadblocks out of their way so they can do their job. I think that's a great summary. And I just love the whole point about you have this um, potential, you know, you were the interim program director, but actually you made it into becoming the permanent one. And I think there are always opportunities out there. You just have to be open to them. And even if it, they don't look sort of great to begin with, I mean, you know, you can always get experience, can't you? Like, like, like you did. Right. And if it doesn't work out in that job, then you can leverage that to go elsewhere. So I think that's a really smart thing that, that you did to run with it and obviously do a good job. It's interesting, you know, with some years behind me and a bit of wisdom, you realize, you know, your career is kind of like a, you're adding ingredients to it as you go, go along in the hopes of having, you start with a good recipe, you add ingredients in, and then at the end, you hope you have something tasty to show for it. But really those ingredients is all the learning you get along the way. My belief is you can learn from any situation, any person good and bad, you know, you can learn, you learn as much, if not more from mistakes 
or as much, if not more, from, you know, the way people do things when they don't do it the right way. You know, you can learn from any situation. So all experiences are good, even when they're painful. In business, there's a lot of, you know, we all make a lot of mistakes. And instead of, you know, shutting down and giving up, if you can just get through it, there's so much to learn. You've got to figure out, look, there is going to be some short-term pain. And I think my mindset is, look, um, at some points in life, there are going to be painful experiences and you're going to be thinking, my God, I can't get through this. But I think if you have the faith to keep going and not not delusionally, because you have to look at the data points and, you know, say if you're doing a podcast and nobody's listening, then I think that's a sign to say you should stop it or, or go <laughs> off air or whatever. But I think, you know, if you can see those gradual improvements or you can feel yourself getting better, uh, just because it's hard, that doesn't mean that you should stop or quit. You have to put a certain amount of time in. And, and also, I like this analogy, which people have told me about. And, and this is interesting coming from a media person in that you can look at your career almost like a media company or or something you're because you're you're creating stuff so it's like content creation and then distribution so obviously you've got to create content and uh, credibility about yourself acquire skills but then you've got to go out and connect with people out there and actually market yourself because if they don't know what you can do then it's not that that helpful uh, because you need employers to come along to you to some extent yeah i agree with that and i think just to build on your point is it's not about the one thing that you do isn't in isolation. So you're doing this podcast and three years from now, maybe you will, or maybe you won't be doing the podcast, but guaranteed that you doing this podcast is going to teach you something, give you a connection, give you a learning. Something's going to happen with this podcast that will lead you to the next thing. And if we get over this I don't know if it's fear or this inner voice in our head, this fear of failure or worry about what other people think. If we can get past that and just create and just do and not look at these things that we do as one-offs that we have to judge them on. And it was, you know, the same for me writing the book. I tried to write a a book a few different times. I don't, I don't know why I want to write a book. I just did. It was just one of those things on my list, but I kept shutting myself down because I kept thinking like, you're not a writer. I'm not. Who's going to read it? No one's going to read it. It's what if it's no good? After years of this conversation with myself, I one day just said, who cares? The goal of writing and publishing a book isn't to become a bestseller. It isn't to become a full-time author. The goal is to write and publish a book because I want to do that. That's it. That's the end of it. And so if no one reads it, it doesn't matter because the goal isn't to get people to read it. The goal is to write it and publish it. And that reframing really helped me. And now I don't know where, am I going to write another one? I have no idea. And it doesn't matter. This one action doesn't have to be judged as the only thing that I've done. Who knows where it will lead to if it leads to anywhere. I mean, it led to me meeting you and it led to me talking to you. And that's amazing. Yeah, and I think this whole idea of limiting beliefs is so important. And the same thing before starting the podcast, where it wasn't about trying to be good, it was trying to share knowledge. Um, and then I met somebody who said, yeah, you should just go for it. And then I and then I set a date and I had eight weeks to come up with a name, a logo and some guests. And I think sometimes when you're under that pressure, hopefully good things um, happen. So I, I totally agree with it. Just go and do it, create content. 
And then you, know, you will get, the more you create, the better you'll become. So hopefully mm-hmm. books two and three um, by Julie Allen will hopefully be more um, successful. But I think success is what you make of it to, to some extent. That's Isn't- right. Yeah, the, the original title of my book was called This Book Will Fail. <laughs> I needed to give myself permission to write this book. And so my original title was This Book Would Fail. And I, once I had that title, I thought, right, now I know exactly what my mission is and I know why I'm doing this. Success doesn't always mean money or followers or praise from other people or con- congratulatory messages. Success can simply mean doing something that you want to do, period, end of story. And it's funny, Judy, with success, I don't know whether you've ever found this, but sometimes you hear a song and you're not really sure what it is. And then you're trying to figure out how could I find this on internet, on the internet or Google, you're putting in words. And then finally you find it and you think, oh my God, that's like a huge win. Uh, Do you ever find that? (laughs) Totally. All the time. A hundred percent. You know, I'll go looking for a, if it's not a song, sometimes I'll just be looking for oh, I remember reading about this. Where did I read about it? And then I go on a Google search and then I find the article. I'm like, oh, there's a win. <laughs> yeah, forget the bonus. Yeah, yeah that's, that's right. That's a win. <laughs> doesn't matter. <laughs> and, and now obviously moving on to your book, Imperfectly Kind. Obviously, congrats on getting it out. I, I love Thank reading you. it. So um, what, what's it about and why did you write it? It's about using kindness as your superpower in leadership. You know, this notion that when we were talking about, I wasn't any good on the air and, you know, I got kind of shoved into programming and then into management. I never wanted to be in management. I mean, I didn't want to be anyone's boss because the stereotype in my head of a boss was, you know, you had to be mean and, you know, yell at people and kind of be a jerk and, you know, not have any emotions and have no fun that was the, I don't know why I had that in my head but that you know that sort of that was in my head and that's not who I am I'm not interested in power but what I found out I really loved doing was working with people and I do like this notion I like being responsible for things and I also I like some freedom you know so I realized that the fewer people <laughs> Um, ahead of me, the more freedom I get, you know, the fewer people that have to ask me questions all the time. And maybe that's a little bit of the rebellious spirit I still have. That was my motivation was like, oh, if I do this job, you know, I'll have the opportunity to work with more people and I'll have some more freedom. And then this realization that I could be, you know, the boss at any level and still be kind and not lose that North Star of wanting to be a good person. And in fact, being kind as a leader is really good for business, particularly when you have a team and you want a a team of high performers who have the opportunity to work for many different companies. You know, they're not going to stand around and work for someone that's a jerk. They don't have to. You know, earlier in our careers, maybe we have to work for people that are like that. But if you're good at your job and you have a lot of options, people end up deciding where they want to work often because of who the boss is. I just love that point because I think it's about creating leverage. And if you can make yourself as employable and you add huge amounts of value, then you can actually pretty much find your employer. And now I think people are thinking, reframing that working contract and thinking, okay, look, okay, money is important, 
But if I don't have an employer who's reasonable and if things go bad or, you know, there's flexibility, if I don't get those things, then I'll just go somewhere else. And I and it, it always struck me sometimes working in certain organizations, you see those people who are just there because they can't go anywhere else. And I think that's a bit depressing for them. Um, and, you know, the leverage is completely on the other foot. And I'm not saying that you should be playing your manager, but I think if your manager realizes, look, you, as you're saying, you, you have other options, then that manager is a little bit nicer to you. And also, I think it's good for you because then you're constantly thinking, how can I be adding value uh, to the team, to the company? I mean, what do you think, Julie? I, yeah, I think that's very well said, you know, leverage 100%. So you can be kind because it's the right thing to do and that's who you are and what your values are and what your characteristics are, which I think is where I started this whole thing from in that I just really, truth be told, you know, my North Star has always been about being a good person. I can't say I'm 100% successful, but I do, you know, at the end of it, you know, people are, if there's going to be a eulogy, you want people to say, yeah, she was a good person. And that's more important to me than people saying, you know, the most brilliant leader ever, the, you know, smartest person I'd ever met, the richest, any of that. It's really about sort of kindness and goodness. Um, so that was always my North Star. I think sometimes people mistake kindness with weakness and that you can't be a kind boss because then you're giving up your power. That's not it at all. And in fact, what I've learned in business is that often by being kind, you get more as a leader. People, because they, like you said, they want to they wanna try harder because you treat them well. That doesn't mean that you let them do whatever they want or no matter how good or bad people are at their job, they get to stay in it. It's the opposite. And if you apply kindness to the business, I'm going to be kind to the business, which means I'm going to make a tough decision. And then you apply kindness to the team. I'm going to be kind to the team by making sure they are all doing what they're supposed to be doing and they're carrying their own load so someone else doesn't have to carry it for them. Kind to your community. I'm going to take care of the businesses around me and the audience that we're serving. That kind of kindness and that's the spirit of kindness, I think, can really help propel your business. And I think that's a great point about making tough decisions, because say you have somebody who's not performing or you have a division which isn't working out, you, you need to be able to take those hard decisions and say, look, um, OK, this isn't happening. But look, I'll try and help you guys get get another job or give you some help or restructure things. Because as you're saying, if one bit is not working, then you don't want everything else to be dragged down, do you? That's right. It sounds maybe odd to say, but by shutting down a business, you are being kind to it because no one is happy being involved in something that's not working. I mean, they may need the paycheck and they may not want to lose their job, but they're not satisfied. So then it becomes, well, how do you be, how are you kind to the people whose business you just shut down and how do you take care of them? Like you said, help them find another job, make sure if you're in a position where you can give them severance, you give them severance. Be humane about their exit. Don't write the, you know, Julie Adam is no longer with the company. We wish her well in her future endeavors memo. I mean, actually write something that's meaningful. Let the person say goodbye to their team, whatever. I mean, there are kind things you can do that can make things better without being, you know, less tough 
on your business uh, or on a business decision. So they can be set, they're separate things. Um, and I think that's what's really important around kindness is that it's not seen as giving in to everything and, you know, saying yes to everything. That's not it at all. And, and I, lo- I love those bosses, the ones I've really enjoyed working for. They're tough and, and, and they have some power as well, which I think is a good thing, especially when they're negotiating compensation from the higher levels. But, but also, I think if they are kind to you, you really want to go beyond and make them look good because then you feel as if you have like personal skin in the game and, and you really are a team. Yeah, I totally agree. If I use myself personally, I'm going to work hard at my job and I'm going to try to do right um, by the company and by the team and be successful because it's, you know, one, it's my reputation, two, it's my responsibility, three, it's what I'm paid to do. And ultimately, if I don't do that, then I won't do the job. Will I have more joy if I'm doing it for a leader who treats me well? Yes. Will I have more success? Maybe, but I can tell you for sure that if I'm great at my job and my leader is a jerk, that's not going to work and I'm not going to stay. And again, you know, maybe early in our careers where we don't have a lot of leverage, we have to put up with it for a little longer. But the first chance you get to not put up with it anymore, you won't. And people go fleeing from bosses and they go fleeing out of organizations because they don't want to put up with it. And and I just love that point you made, because I think, especially in careers, if you feel that you have some sort of exit strategy, then you just feel so less under pressure. Because there are so many people who are in these situations where they have no options. But if you do have options by creating a network, people know you, um, and it's very much if they uh, like you and, and you can do a good job then offers hopefully will, will come in. And then I think that's up to you to create that network and create that value, which uh, hopefully people, they, they will see that. So you have options when you're dealing with your employer. I totally agree. I mean, I always say to people, you're responsible for your own career. I'm here to help. And if I can open doors for you, um, absolutely. But it's, it's not my job to be responsible for your career. That, that has to be up to you you are responsible for owning, you know, the, I have a boss that used to say, you're the CEO of your own career. And I absolutely agree with that. And you've got to recognize that if something isn't going well for you, or you're not happy, or you don't like the situation you're in, or you want to make a change, you know, no one's going to offer that up to you out of the blue, unless either they know about it. So you've got to take action. You've got to be the CEO of your own career. Yeah, it's a great point. And and moving on to this server kindness test, I, I really like that. Yeah, it's interesting from the perspective of a job seeker because I think that helps them get an insight into what a hiring manager is looking for. Um, do you want to maybe talk a little bit about that, Julie? Sure. Yeah, I I um assuming you want to create a culture where I mean, I believe in hiring the full person, not just the person's skills. So assuming you want to create a culture where, you know, you have people who can be themselves at work and, you know, you're going to have a team of high performers and they're going to be, they're going to treat each other with respect and they're going to give each other the space they need to give each other. Then one of the things I like to do is, you know, as the hiring manager, 
you know, your business card sort of people have to be nice to you, right? I always say like everybody around here is paid to be nice to me um, because of my business card, not because of me. It's just because of my business card. If I don't have the business card anymore, no one's paid to be nice to me anymore. And we all know what it's like. I mean, we all started. I started as an intern. I remember what some people were like to me when I was an intern and I know what they're like to me now. And again, it's when your business card is intern versus your business card is president, there are some people that behave differently. And I don't want those people on my team and I don't want to be around them because I think there's something that's wrong. I think people should, you know, we all change, you know, perhaps the words we use and the message we deliver, depending on who we're talking to. We probably talk to our grandparents differently than we do to our best friends. And maybe we're going to present slightly differently to the CEO than we would to you know, the feet on the street and the frontline staff. Um, but we're not going to fundamentally change how we treat people. And if you're only nice to the CEO and you're not nice to the frontline staff, I don't want you on my team. So I've developed over the years a bit of a, you know, a few checks and balances for how to test out what people are really like, because I know they're going to be nice to me and they're going to be nice to the hiring manager. So I do this thing, I call it the server kindness test, which is you Pay attention to how people behave to everybody around you. So one example is, you know, when people come in to meet me at the office for an interview, I have my executive assistants uh, meet them at the door and then walk them up to the boardroom. And I usually come a couple minutes late so that she can spend some time with them. And then she takes them back out. And I always ask her, what were they like? How, how do they treat the security guard? You know, if they went up and bought a coffee, what were they like to the person that served them a coffee? If you, or another good one is take someone for lunch. Pay attention, you know, pay attention when they're at the table, but also pay attention when they leave the table. And how, you know, do they smile at people? Are they nice to them? Or do they have that air of, I'm better than you? Because whatever people are like when they think power matters, that's what they're going to be like when you're not around. You know, that's how they're going to behave when the boss isn't around. And that is disruptive. And I don't want those people on our team. I think that's a great point. And just trying to spend time with that person to see what they're like when they're being themselves. Because, yeah, I, I totally agree with you, Julie. You know what it's like when you go to these places and you see the boss man and like his acolytes around him and you know, he's better looking. He's got better jokes. And you're thinking, totally. oh my God, I don't want to be one of those people. But then you feel yourself, you've got to like, be like everybody else. And it's dread dreadful, but that's just part of life, you know, until I can form Borolessa LLC Media Company. <laughs> yeah, I think though there's a way to do all of that and still be true to who you are. You know, I think there's a way to be respectful uh, and it's something I work very hard at, you know, is that I have a rule where I will not say anything about someone that I'm not prepared to say to their face. I truly believe that I live by that. And, you know, that means that if the head of the company does something that I don't think is right, and I'm not going to go and complain about it to a whole bunch of people unless I'm prepared to talk to him about it. I think that's the way you have to be. You know, you have to stay true to your values and to me sort of having that integrity and that, you know, that gut check around, I don't care what your business card says. I'm going to be respectful and kind to you unless 
you give me a reason not to be, you know, but I don't, it doesn't matter to me whether you're the frontline staff, the security guard, or the, you know, the, the president and CEO of the company. And actually, I think that's a great point. If you are the, the, the main man or the main woman, you want people to tell you, uh, be straight with you, because there's no point telling me what I know. Tell me something that I, I don't know. There's far more value in that than just feeding me stuff which isn't of real value. Um, no, I just love that. And, and, and I love this thing in the team chapter where you're talking about being flexible and dealing with turbulence, because I think going forward, there's a lot more uncertainty than um, mm-hmm. less. Um, what do you think about that, Judy? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, the thing people are feeling right now is uncertainty. And I, I have two teenagers, you know, one is away at university and the other one's 15. And, you know, we've been in and out of lockdown, virtual school versus in-person school. And other than it being frustrating and an annoyance, I've been okay to do my job. I'm fully set up with Wi-Fi. I have good internet service at home. I don't need to go in the office. I traveled a lot for business before, so I already was remote a lot of the time. For one, I really have nothing to complain about. But for two, well, frustrated that I can't, you know, go into the office or see my friends or go to a restaurant or go on a vacation compared to what other people have. I say often, I have it very good. Whereas I'm on, you know, team meetings and people have two and three and four-year-olds at home and they have to look after them and they have to do their job. And for anyone that's ever had a two, a three or a four-year-old, they are not really great at um, being independent or respectful of your meeting time. You know, that, that doesn't add up to them. Like mom or dad is right there and I don't understand why you won't play with me and why we can't color and why we can't go out and make a snowman. So having that sort of empathy for one, you know, really understanding that what you're going through is wildly different and probably in my case, for sure, better. Uh, and, and I'm able to better adapt to it uh, because of the privilege that I have and understanding that and then being flexible around it and, you know, letting people sort of giving them more rope and more uh, opportunity to do what works for them is crucial. I mean, because they're not coping and they can't cope. And that kind of flexibility, I think, is so important. And in the end, who cares? I mean, if somebody says, look, I want to, you know, I have someone that's that's part of our team who has young kids and said, I'm going to do very early in the morning. And then I've got to take basically like mid-morning off. And then I'm going to come back in the afternoon and I'm going to do some stuff in the evening. Why do I care? I mean, still going to get the work done. If, unless it's a, sh- you know, a shift that you have to actually go in and cover, it doesn't really matter. Making people do things a certain way just because you can doesn't mean you should. That's good management because I think sometimes people just like to micromanage and that's not really good. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think that having that empathy is such a great point. And then your, my final thought is about the, the end game where you sort of you know, finish the book. I, I think that's such a great point thinking, you know, uh, don't worry too much about the journey and you have a, a lot more control that you have about creating this end game. Do you just want to elaborate on that, Julie? Sure. Yeah, I think, you know, we all have to realize that at some point, whatever we're doing, we're not going to do anymore. I mean, and not to get too dark, but that includes living, you know, that we all know how the game ends. We don't know when, but we know that it will. 
and I believe that to be true within your career and within business too, is there's an end date to everything that you do. And if you've done the same job for a certain number of years, at some point, you can't do it forever. They're my point of view on the end game is that's okay. Because the end of that one thing means the start of the next thing. But there are some practical things you need to do to prepare for that. I really wish, and this is something I'm teaching my kids a lot about, I really wish I understood the world of finance more. You know, money was not that important to me and I wasn't driven by money. That I, you know, I didn't take a job because of the money. But, you know, in the end, we all need money to live and to provide for our families. And I wish I would have understood more about finances. So I think, you know, having practically having an understanding of that, thinking about, okay, if this ended today, how would I would I be able to manage? And then being when the time is right, being gracious about going. And there's two things to that. One is we don't always get to to decide when our time is up uh, from a job. My boss could come in tomorrow and say, or later today and say, you know, we love everything you've done, but we're going in a different direction. Like I have no control over that, right? Let's not tempt fate, Judy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If it happens, I will let you know and you can edit parts of this out. But you know, that can, I mean, that's the reality is, yeah. I, I don't, you don't always know what, what someone else thinks Uh, about the work that you do so you have to be prepared that at some point it's going to end and you have to be mentally okay with that and if you're not you have to get yourself to a place where you will be okay and what are the steps you need to take so that if it all ends tomorrow you're okay with it and that might be building a bigger network it might be you know having a savings account it might be investments it may be you know, sending out a bunch of resumes so you have a backup plan, whatever that is, you you have to recognize that it could change tomorrow and you have to be okay with it. You know, I think that's a great point about don't be validated by your job. Think about actually the things, the skills that you have, because I think being, you know, the president or an MD, those are great titles. But you know, if you can think, what what is it that I do? Where can I add value? I think those are very powerful. Um, and if also people know that you can do this, That's that's a brilliant thing. So, um, Judy, I know, I know that we're running up to the end of our time, and I don't want to get you in trouble with the boss. Um, yes. So, just one one last thing, just in terms of career strategies, anything that you'd like to add, um, which might help our listeners. I don't think there are any sweeping statements about what makes a successful career. So, you know, for a period of time, it was very on vogue to stay with one company and never leave that company and get the pension plan and all of that. And then it's swing, the pendulum swings to, no, 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 you got to switch every 18 months. You got to go from company to company to company to company. You know, what makes a great career is if you have a purpose, you're achieving that purpose in the work that you're doing. We spend at minimum 40 hours a week and I work more than 40 hours a week and I have for most of my career. That's a lot of time. Eight hours a day is a third of your life. And so it's a lot of time that we spend working. So you better do something that you find fulfilling. And fulfilling can be many different things. You know, I have a sister who drove a hydro truck and it was very fulfilling to her because she liked the camaraderie, but she also liked the security. She liked the pay. She liked the pension. She liked the, the stability. 
you know, I couldn't do that. That wouldn't be for me. And that doesn't mean she's right and I'm wrong or vice versa. So my career advice is to really be true to yourself. Recognize that you're going to spend a lot of time doing this. Do whatever you can to work with people that you respect and who respect you. Stay true to your values. And Success may mean bouncing around from company to company or job to job. It may mean staying in one organization for a long period of time. It may mean a combination of the two. It may mean that you're, you're freelance and you work three or four different jobs. And it may mean that you start your own business. One's not better than the other. And I think, you know, if you're trying to chase somebody else's version of you, you're not being true to yourself. And I don't think you should do that. that there's some great thoughts there. And, and funny, Judy, I like to give my guests a chance to give a shout out to anybody that's helped them in their lives. So apart from Kirk Gibson and the, the Tigers of 84, is there anybody else you'd like to thank? Yeah, well, I would, you know, my parents, for sure, my, my dad especially was my, you know, first mentor. Uh, he was a real kind and tough leader. So I really, you know, learned a lot from him. And I'll give a shout out to my hubby, Darren, my boys, Jack and Cal and Phoebe, the dog. Very good. Thank you so much for your time. I'll make sure all your um, uh, contact details are in the show notes and you know, links to your website and the book. But really appreciate you taking the time to catch up with us and uh, good luck um, yeah, with your career and, and the book. Thanks so much, Judy. Take care. Thank you so much. Stay in touch. Thank you so much for listening and staying to the end. That was such an enjoyable interview. If you would like to listen to more episodes, then please consider subscribing to the podcast, which is available on your favorite providers and subscription is free. If you wish to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, please take a look at the show notes, which are available online. Thanks once again for listening. Stay safe and look after yourself. I hope you will join me again in the future.